This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Today's discussion centers on the world of mobility. We'll cover several areas, including the current state and what the future holds for mobility, the move to full electrification, and the infrastructure needed to make that happen. We'll also talk about global public policy developments in the mobility space, autonomous vehicles, and investable opportunities and strategies in mobility. Uh, we have a fantastic and a highly experienced group joining us uh, for the call and for, for this uh, podcast today. So let me uh, get started with some introductions. Uh, we'll start with Jose Munoz. Jose is the Global Chief Operating Officer of Hyundai Motor Company, and he's the President and CEO of both Hyundai Motor North America and Hyundai Motor America. Jose is responsible for global operations and the American market, including Hyundai Motor North, Central, and South America. Jose is a native of Spain. He earned his PhD in nuclear engineering from Polytechnic University of Madrid and has an MBA from Instituto de Empresa Business School in Madrid. He is fluent in English, Spanish, and French. Our next guest is Elena Mueller. Elena is the global head of venture management at Scheffler. She runs the firm's corporate venture arm and focuses on three main areas of growth, hydrogen and energy, robotics and IoT, electric and automated mobility. Prior to her current role, she was an entrepreneur in China where she built a digital consulting business. She has a master's degree in psychology and economics from Hamburg University, an MBA from Northumbria University, and an undergrad from Stuttgart University. Next guest is Chris Thomas. Chris is the co-founder of Assembly Ventures, the first transatlantic mobility venture capital firm. Previously, he co-founded the Detroit Mobility Lab, the Michigan Mobility Institute, and the first mobility-focused VC. He's an avid investor, a U.S. Army vet, and a former investment banker. Uh, Yale uh, for his MBA and Michigan State for his undergrad. Eric Tannenblatt is our last uh, guest uh, today, but he's our Global Chair of Public Policy and Regulation at Denton's. He also leads the firm's global autonomous vehicles practice. He's widely recognized as one of the nation's preeminent uh, public policy thought leaders. He served in the administrations of three presidents, been a senior advisor uh, to numerous senators and a governor. He received his undergrad from Emory University. Well, let's get into some questions and let's start at the beginning. Elena, how'd you get into the mobility space and what drew you to it? Hey, Edward, thanks a lot for the question. So I think I had a pretty uncommon career, let's put it that way. So I started basically as a textile engineer within a European premium fashion label as a product manager. And after six years, so since I'm born in the 80, basically 1980s, I wanted to yeah, create impact. And I saw that there are better spaces than the fashion industry to do that. So I literally would say I woke up um, one morning and yeah, had the idea to shape mobility, moving the world, uh, not just, let's say, um, yeah, accelerated by the idea of driving a nice car, but really to to create impact and enable economic growth, but also connect people. So how did I do that? I basically continued my education at Northumbria University in England. So I did my MBA. And after returning back, I had the great opportunity to start uh, my career at a global automotive supplier in South Germany. 
which is Chef Lab and where I'm still working today. And now not looking at basically nine years back into the past, I had really exciting opportunities starting from developing purchasing, business development, project management and strategy, not only in different functions, but also um, in the greater China space. And um, I think this was a really exciting experience since we all know that Greater China in terms of technical development, specifically starting 2014, um, really accelerated, just starting from payless ca or cashless pay, for example, but also in the mobility space, like using options like Didi, like shared mobility options. And taking these, let's say, inspirations back to Germany at the beginning of um, 2019, um, our CEO, Klaus Rosenfeld, asked me if I would like to build up this new function for Scheffler, which is venture management. And at that time, we really started to build everything from scratch. And yeah, now looking um, two and a half years back almost, I can really say we have um, yeah, created great success in the field. And I will share a couple of experiences with you later. Okay, Chris, uh, what was your story? How did you get into the mobility space? Oh, thanks for asking. I think for me, I spent my career kind of running after really hard problems. And in 2008, which seems like a long time ago, probably because it was, I had the chance to dive really deep into the future of mobility, but really focused on personal and logistics transport. And after building a number of different business plans, decided that you know I wanted to focus my career on investing in the mobility space. And so co-founded the first firm uniquely focused on investing in mobility, and then was looking was looking really closely at that space around the way. And so over the next 10 years, had the chance to lead, be a part of, or uh, you know, help to negotiate and sell some of the largest deals in the history of the space to date. Um, sat on the board of a company called Newtonomy, one of the largest cash deals for full stack autonomous systems. But deals such as Uber's first AI acquisition, one of Verizon's largest telematic acquisitions, but about 40 deals in some uh, airland, sea, and space and really diving deep into these major thematics. And so in 2018, made the decision to step away from my prior firm, co-founded, as you said, the Detroit Mobility Lab and the Michigan Mobility Institute, focused on ecosystem and talent creation, and then stood up Assembly Ventures, which is really looking at investing in this really unique opportunity that we define as the physical and digital movement of people, goods, data, and energy, which I'll speak to a little later, Eddie. Jose, how about yourself? How did you get in the mobility space? I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'm realizing I started uh, quite, quite early in my career because mobility is about putting uh, particles together, right? So and this is what you do in the nuclear industry. Uh, and I think I started uh, back then. Uh, and then uh, uh, passing through the um, uh, aerospace, which also has uh, something to do with it, uh, connecting uh, objects uh, and the outside uh, space, etc. I think we quickly... Uh, uh, decided to move into the automotive uh, thanks to uh, a very nice encounter as well, which was uh, meeting my wife, who is a car dealer. And then uh, uh, having some experience in, in, uh, in different OEMs. Uh, but now, uh, in particular, uh, with my role in uh, Hyundai, uh, is when uh, I think the opportunities to work in mobility have uh, clearly exploded, right? Because uh, the vision of our company, uh, led by our chairman, uh, Chong, is to uh, be able to uh, excel at creating smart mobility uh, solutions. 
both devices uh, and uh, also uh, applications or services. And then within that, I think uh, this is the perfect uh, timing, right? So in uh, Hyundai, we have uh, decided to no longer be a fast follower, but be pioneers. And then to be pioneer in the mobility space uh, and uh, be, being willing to develop not only the devices, but also the services, you need to develop dual technology. So the electrification technology going through the transition with hybrid and plug-in hybrids. Uh, which we are launching uh, as we speak, but also looking beyond uh, and seeing uh, that uh, the future is electric, but at the same time, uh, when uh, it comes to long range uh, uh, and also uh, transportation and heavy duty, hydrogen is the solution that uh, we see. And then ensuring that uh, uh, we are able to connect the dots and not only we provide uh, the uh, let's say, uh, ground transportation, but we believe we need to connect uh, ground transportation with air transportation by the uh, creation of the urban air mobility uh, business. And then by investing in uh, key technologies uh, like uh, Motional uh, together with uh, Active or uh, Boston Dynamics so that we can combine all the technologies uh, together to provide uh, either uh, driverless or with a driver uh, mobility, whether for people or for objects. One of the things uh, that we've seen lately has been uh, the change in dynamics due to the pandemic. Uh, but one thing is um, still happening, which is uh, either the people move to, uh, to other people or to objects, or you want objects to come to you, like food or goods, uh, and so forth. So uh, I think we are all in to the mobility. We see a huge future. And I think uh, uh, nowadays you really need to connect all the dots to be able to uh, capitalize on this opportunity in the marketplace. Thanks, Jose. Well, let's talk definitions. Chris, I mean, one of the areas that you, you briefly mentioned it when you're talking about how you got into this space, about the movement of all of these various areas and pieces of the, of the puzzle, Talk to us about Mobility 4.0. That's an area that you're exploring, but also give us a definition of mobility that we can use today and everybody can chime in on their thoughts on that. And then what should we ex uh, expect about this uh, next revolution? Sure. I mean, I think mobility has been tough to nail down for the last decade, especially. When we started and we started telling people I was excited about investing in mobility, they're like, oh, we like telephony as well. We're like, no, 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 uh, we're not talking about that. You know, we're talking about this, this opportunity to, to invest in the companies that move the world. And so for us, as I said before, it's, it's the physical and digital movement of people, goods, data, and energy. And I like what Jose just said around connecting the dots because there's going to be these large incumbent industries, traditional and new OEMs and auto, pure tech, infrastructure, finance, and insurance plays with, from a FinTech perspective. And it's the opportunity to invest at the intersection of those large established sectors and the technologies that are going to really enable what comes next. And in our opinion, Mobility 4.0 is the revolution that's taking place right now. It's that focus on connectivity and digitization and looking at opportunities from, you know, kind of pure play auto tech to autonomy to holistic robotics as it relates to manufacturing, logistics, and supply chain to thinking about urban air mobility in a very holistic way, not just with one kind of point to point with ways in which multimodality is going to be a big focus and then smart manufacturing and electrification and powertrain broadly. 
but it's that revolution that's going to allow us to really focus on the the flexible, autonomous, interchangeable assets that are going to bring more optimization and more utilization to assets in the field. And so that's where we get really excited, both from a definition perspective, as well as what we think the, the biggest trends are in the here and now. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Jose, uh, part of what uh, Chris mentioned was is quite intriguing, especially around some of these trends uh, that he's seeing. You know, one in particular that, of those trends is, is is that a lot of folks are talking about is, is elect- electrification and full electrification. I know your firm has really looked at issue, and I'd be curious how are you balancing that type of a trend versus your existing line of business. And what does that look like when you're looking at a car company that operates not only uh, in North America and different parts of the world, but also in emerging markets? How, is that, how could full electrification actually become a reality? Well, that's a very good um, a, a question, Eddie. Very, very uh, good question. So, and I think uh, it all starts by having a vision on how you see the future. And then uh, once you understand uh, how the future is going to be, uh, according to your lens, you need to create a transition plan. But without having a very clear vision of where you want to go, it's very difficult uh, to get there in a, in a proper way. Right? In our case, uh, we see the future uh, fully electrified by uh, 2040, uh, having uh, the internal objective uh, to uh, deliver between 8 to 10% of global market share within the uh, electric uh, market. But before that, uh, we see that uh, in order for us to be a major player, we need to uh, sell as a group about 1 million uh, global uh, EV sales by the end of 2025. And then to do that, uh, you need to make a plan on uh, the introduction of uh, battery EV uh, and other green cars, and we've done so. So we have, uh, as a group, 23 uh, new models within the green uh, area uh, to be introduced between uh, now and 2025. And then, uh, concretely, for the Hyundai brand, this is going to be 10 uh, new models. And then we have already started the transition. First step is a a hard one, which is to say, hey, we don't want to continue to invest in the future IS uh, models. Second is uh, we understand that the transition is going to take some time. So we decided to invest uh, heavily on uh, the hybrid and plug-in hybrids. And as we speak, uh, we have launched the Elantra hybrid, the Sonata hybrid, the Tucson hybrid, and also the Santa Fe hybrid. Uh, a lot of all, all the competitors, they have made uh, dif- different choices. We've seen uh, with our numbers. And uh, not only the sales, but also the profit that uh, we took the right uh, choice, right? And then also we believe that the plug-in hybrids uh, have to play a key role uh, before getting into the full uh, battery EV transition. Uh, But at the same time, we uh, are giving um, uh, the world uh, the view that we have about the future. And we believe that the future is so important and so different that we should operate with a different brand. And this has been a bold decision by our, by our company, very different to others. So for example, our Ionic 5 is gonna be Ionic. It's not gonna be a Hyundai, it's gonna be Ionic. And then we are expecting to launch Ionic 6. It will be another Ionic vehicle, and then Ionic 7. And sort of like a sub-brand then? 
Uh, yes, exactly. We're creating a sub-brand sub uh, to clearly uh, differentiate the past from the future. Now, when it comes to uh, <coughs> enablers, infrastructure, it is a key enabler. And then uh, we believe that um, uh, in this, we need to work all together. Uh, it's a kind of a, a cooperation and collaboration between the public and the private sectors, uh, right? Because we cannot this, uh, do this uh, by ourselves. And then this is why uh, when it comes to introducing electrification in uh, maybe uh, not uh, the most developed countries like uh, the US or Europe, you need to ensure that uh, uh, the public sector uh, is playing a key role in deploying the infrastructure, but also uh, among the, the private companies that we play a key role developing <coughs> a low-cost uh, entry mobility solutions, <coughs> not only uh, vehicles, but also car sharing and all other services, so that we uh, get access to the mobility with low-cost uh, devices, uh, services, uh, etc. I want to say that in, in our case also, we are strongly advocating uh, to develop the uh, infrastructure uh, for hydrogen. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of people realize now that uh, <clears throat> the infrastructure is key for the deployment of the battery electric vehicles. I was there about 12 years ago when uh, another brand was launching uh, the, uh, the first electric vehicles, and then uh, it was really very tough. So I hope <clears throat> that by now, uh, both uh, private and public institutions realize that we need to make uh, a, now a decision to deploy the hydrogen infrastructure. To me, hydrogen is one of the very clear winners of the future. And uh, I don't see them as much a part of the conversation as electrification. And electrification for us is a little bit more today and hydrogen uh, tomorrow. Two, two really, and if I may, two really yeah, important please. points that I want to call out there. I think the, the focus on what Jose and Hyundai has done by completely rethinking what they're going to be on a forward-going basis. This isn't a step change. This is a full rethink around the future of robotics, the future of automation, the future of autonomy, the future of aerial mobility. That Those are the companies that are not only going to survive, that are going to thrive amongst the incumbents within the Western world. So I think that's incredibly exciting. But that focus on infrastructure is so important, and it's one that you don't hear nearly enough. We stepped back at Assembly and said, what's the right aperture? What's the right framework to think about this opportunity through? And rather than CASE, which we've used for the last decade, we put something we call ISA, Infrastructure Systems Applications, with infrastructure at the bedrock, the systems layer that connects the physical and the digital, and the application layer that allows for consumer engagement. And so this is going to be a huge part of this discussion. And not only that, you know, unlike, I think, the past decade of venture capital, there are early stage opportunities to infrastructure that are incredibly exciting that are going to have hardware components that'll be a big part of this ecosystem, you know, in the years to come. So Elena, uh, Chris and Jose, uh, I continue to mention infrastructure. What about, what about infrastructure from your perspective as a supplier? I mean, is it as simple as, you know, putting pieces together and flicking a switch uh, mm -hmm. and getting this, this moving? Or where are we on that, on that front? Right. So thanks a lot for the question. Yes. And and as they both pointed out very clearly, infrastructure plays a big 
part in the actual, let's say, transition towards electrification, but not just electrification, also in terms of hydrogen infrastructure. So um, basically, I think when we, for example, look into European markets, we see an immense increase in infrastructure, in charging stations, for example, I think almost 30% during the last, um, yeah, in the last two years. However, I still think that this is not enough. So as Jose pointed out that public, the public actually governments have to really enforce that. And we can see this on the one hand side, for example, in Germany, that this is highly subsidized by governments, also for private households, for example, to really integrate charging stations into the home, right? Um, and then when we look from a Scheffler perspective, we at the moment do not look into charging stations as such, but we really look into the, let's say, the um, aspect of range anxiety, which is still one aspect why, let's say, the private customer might not buy an electrified car. So what, this what's is the, where... What's the range that they want? I mean, the new cars right. are, what, two, three hundred miles? <laughs> so, so... Yeah, so I would say if you think in miles, I always think in kilometers, but I would say at least I would say at least uh, 600 to 800 kilometers or even going up to 1000 kilometers. And a big, let's say, lever here are the actual batteries. And I think this is where Scheffler is looking into very strongly. So we can see a lot of um, really innovative companies coming up in that space as well. I, just to drop a few that you all know, Quantum Space, for example, right? Uh, Quantum Scape. So it's all going into different battery technologies that actually, yeah, double or triple the actual range of an yeah electrified car. And I think this could be a lever to to really let's say um, yeah bring this into the mass market. So Eric, we've talked about public and private sector integrating and and kind of that intersection for the infrastructure piece what does that look like from from your perspective and are you seeing priorities shift in this new administration here in the u.s uh, absolutely uh president biden from uh, the time he was running for president talked about uh, uh build back better and you know rebuilding the infrastructure in america he made climate change uh, key priority in his campaign. And if you look at what he has done since he's taken office, uh, he's lived up to or is trying to live up to his campaign promises. And right now, uh, the Congress is you know, coming to uh, hopefully uh, uh, bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. We'll see in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but that has been a, a top priority uh, for this administration. And it's a broad-based uh, infrastructure bill, and a big part of that uh, deals with building out um, infrastructure for uh, electric vehicles. Uh, you know, there's uh, money that's been allocated, uh, or at least proposed, in the president's budget that he just submitted to Congress uh, to build out uh, EV infrastructure. Uh, and there's a big emphasis uh, on mobility, so it's not just uh, infrastructure in terms of roads and bridges. Uh, it's also talking about broadband um, and other investments uh, in mobility, uh, whether it's transit, uh, aviation, maritime. Uh, so I think you're you're seeing uh, the public sector, at least in the United States, and 
And even looking around the world, uh, you know, Jose mentioned hydrogen earlier. Uh, you know, I, I know that Germany has made big investments in infrastructure with regards to uh, hydrogen. And, and so you're seeing a lot of um, a lot of activity around the world as it relates to uh, infrastructure. But in particular, in the United States right now, uh, it's front and center. What about the the proposed budget from the Department of Transportation? Anything in, interesting there on mobility? Are, are there some things that are that you didn't expect? Yeah, no, I, I think that the um, the proposed the, the president's budget, which will obviously get changed some in Congress, has a significant um, proposed investment uh, in mobility. And in in a broad sense, I mean, there's funds, as I mentioned, for electrification, uh, helping uh, with research development, building out uh, EV infrastructure. Um, there's funding for um, uh, you know, efforts to uh, uh, provide mobility uh, opportunities uh, to various communities. Uh, mobility plays a key role uh, in society and having access to jobs is key. And that's been something that this administration uh, has tried to do is to propose investments that will allow people access, whether it's to jobs, uh, to education opportunities. I mean, look, I've spent my whole career in and around government and politics and economic development is so very important and it's a public-private partnership. And, you know, equity is a, is a big piece of it. And, you know, social equity, you see a big movement towards smart cities, not just in America, but across the country. But President Biden put money in his budget to uh, help advance uh, smart cities um, throughout throughout the country. And, you know, we have to uh, address the issues of supply chain and transportation plays a key role uh, in our supply chain. Chris, let, let's talk about the the capital that's going into mobility. It seems like it. you talk about step change of evolution. We're, are we seeing a step change in funding towards this space come together as well? We've seen a step change in valuations, uh, if nothing else. And so I, I, I think that we definitely are, are seeing one. And, and why is that happening, I guess, is the big question. And it comes, I think, to these very these things that are kind of coming together at the same time. I think 5G is a huge push. I think, you know, autonomy getting to not only definitive use cases, but more broadly deployed. I think the smart city that Eric, you just spoke to, you know, thinking about infrastructure from a traditional perspective. But when we can do AI overlay on, on assets that have already been deployed and we can have much safer intersections for pedestrians and for vehicles, we can take processing load off the vehicle and not just think about V to V, vehicle to vehicle communication, but vehicle to infrastructure, V to I communication. And so there's, there's this new opportunity for the two things that investors love most, Eddie. You know, they want to have, you know, kind of revenue growth uh, that is accelerating quickly and forward going cash flows that can be underwritten and proved. And I think we're seeing these happen in huge ways within industries that frankly have been thought of as boring. You know, I think, uh, you know, companies within logistics, companies within maritime shipping, you know, companies within heavy duty trucking, businesses that have been, been you know, ran with clipboards and, and pads of paper 
for the last many decades, there's an opportunity for technology that digitization and connectivity that Mobility 4.0 really represents to bring huge efficiencies. And the thing I get excited about, I think, is that certainly there's a lot of opportunity from an investment perspective, but the impact we can have on society, the things that Eric was speaking to, and I think that I know Jose and, and Elena are also very passionate about, around what can we what can we provide to our customer, to our neighbors? We can provide them more safety and more time in all aspects of what they do every day. And, and that's so valuable. And so those are those are some of the reasons why I think you just see money coming into the space in droves. It's certainly the economic opportunity, but it's it's this this opportunity on two sides of the coin with personal transit. And then as we saw over the last year with COVID logistics, and there's a way to de-risk as you think about where you place capital on a forward going basis. So let me put my devil's advocate hat on in terms of all of that data and information floating between all these different types of new mediums, vehicle to infrastructure and infrastructure and back, how do you keep it safe? Right there, I can imagine there's a lot of privacy considerations that come into all of that as well. It can't all be uh, champagne, wine, and roses. Maybe sometimes, um, but but I think you're right, Eddie. Uh, this is a key question, and so for us, it's twofold. It's by really thinking about all the stakeholders, and I think the way that Uber bulldozed the world will not happen again because the city has an important place to play at the table when it comes to how these technologies are deployed and how they're monetized. The way the PPP has been undermined, I think there's going to be new ways to structure those to the benefit of all parties going forward. But the other thing I think, at least for us, like our one of our key hypotheses is this very you know, interesting bifurcation between the Western world and China and what that means by way of, you know, of data, privacy or lack thereof, different institutions, technology, stacks that are diverging. There has to be that peace of mind within the West where these assets are deployed and before they're deployed, there needs to be something that serves the consumer. And so that's something we spend a lot of time on. But to be, to be fair to your question, it's still TBD. Those answers are still being come to. Elena, taking uh, those comments in mind, you know, you're working at Scheffler. How, how does a company like yours that's global and has such reach uh, innovate when you're, when you're trying to look at a space like this that, that's very exciting and very crowded? Right. You're, you're absolutely right. I think it's um, yeah, it's a challenge on the one hand side, but it's also a big opportunity. So when you look at Scheffler and the company history, we always have been advocating to pioneer motion. So really having this in our DNA from the company founder Georg Scheffler Senior, and now to the new generation Georg Scheffler Junior. So I think the people that are working at Scheffler, um, this is one of the key success factors, right? The second one is that we are, of course, strongly investing in the organic innovation space. So in the past, we have been strongly investing in electrification. So we basically, um, yeah, we we basically brought in teams, R&D teams from other companies who had the competencies that we might not have had in the past. We also partnered with big universities in China, in Singapore, in the US to, to really get it going from the R&D advanced research point of view. But I still think that, um, yeah, this basically um, is not enough and um, also wasn't enough in the past. So what we did is that we heavily invested on the anorganic innovation, path, um, basically, path. 
So we did a lot of M&A activities in the past, as I mentioned before, in e-mobility, for example, winding technologies, in um, e-drive systems, in also other power electronics, for example. These are all competencies where we haven't been coming from, but that we integrated organically, right? And now when you look into today's space where really innovation cycles are getting really, let's say also in automotive, they're really getting much faster than we have seen it in the past. And you have tech companies entering Apple, so they're building a computer or smartphone on wheels in terms of data gathering, communication, connectivity and intelligence. So how is a traditional company like Scheffler, let's say, yeah, tackling this those challenges and i can tell you that the only way towards that is um yeah basically to to partner so um i think there is a lot of room for partnerships and this is what we did at chapla so that's why we established venture management management in the beginning so we established our technology accelerator as kind of a core center for all the partnership activities with external tech startups or tech companies. And this is happening around the globe today. So we take our innovation centers around the globe to initiate those partnerships around new technologies. So this is one thing basically. Um, but then on the other hand, we also said, okay, there is a totally new, new mobility group coming or even new customers in the future than the traditional ones we know today. So there are companies like Zooks, for example, which is already our customer today. But um, we are building this new mobility ecosystem um, and therefore also building the basically the business pipeline for the next 10 years. And last but not least, we are also have or we also have established, yeah, a strong investment thesis to basically invest in let's say adjacent um, business areas or not only adjacent business areas but also disruptive business areas and this we do via minority investments in those startups where we might not have a basically immediate connection with the core business but where we invest already in the future in terms of new business fields well, thank you, Elena. Jose, let's let's go back to part of the conversation that Chris brought up of sort of the difference uh, between the U.S. and China. U.S. is highest per capita uh, car ownership in the world, but China certainly is the largest manufacturer of cars globally, and if I'm not mistaken, the largest car market. What does that mean for the future of mobility? What does that mean for a, a company like yours, and how does all, all of this fit together? Well, that's um, a very important question, Edith. First, I'd like to touch upon some of the elements that have been uh, put on the table by Elena and uh, Chris uh, related to the uh, infrastructure and the, and the scope of infrastructure, uh, starting uh, with the concept of the smart city, um, uh, because this is connected with the United States and, um, and with China, the question. So... Uh, when you go to medieval cities, uh, like in my home country in, in Spain, you will see uh, that uh, some of those cities, they have been designed uh, for a different uh, type of transportation, basically horses. 
And then when you try to uh, utilize cars, it doesn't work properly, right? Uh, I think uh, in the United States, for example, uh, most of the uh, designs of the infrastructure have been thinking about the traditional uh, uh, transportation uh, and, the, and the signals and the roads uh, and everything that we've done is related to uh, having a driver and assuming that uh, the driver is going to take all the right decisions with the signs that we have. Now, when you look into the future, uh, you realize that there are really uh, many more elements that can be utilized even by a driver or by a computer utilizing artificial intelligence, which uh, uh, they are sensors, uh, but not only the sensors that you have in the car, but that you have around you, right? And they, unlike the past when we could not integrate all this information, the current technology allows us to integrate everything and to make <clears throat> the world safer. To your point about, uh, is this technology safe? Definitely, yes. And I think we are moving uh, towards a zero fat fatality and zero emissions uh, altogether. Which brings us to the issue of um, uh, what does people want to do in different places? And uh, But at the end of the day, my conclusion, uh, Eddie, is an uh, oversimplification. But it's very simple. People are just trying to manage their time. Except that in China, you need to manage your time when you don't have a car. And then uh, you have plenty of people that are like obstacles uh, on your way. And then in, in the United States, you have to manage uh, your time uh, with uh, a little bit uh, less uh, cars and a little bit less uh, population. Uh, and then in both cases, uh, today, we've, uh, we've realized that um, uh, we have a shortage of a key component called chips, which is uh, uh, having an impact on everything that I mentioned, infrastructure, smart city, smart mobility, time management, um, uh, software, and also uh, hardware, and then the devices, the, the vehicles, right? And that's why uh, one of the uh, learning points uh, of, um, of uh, this crisis uh, is being uh, how much dependent we are on chips, uh, right? So uh, I think that the chips are going to be more needed in the future than they are today because there are habits that we're not going to change. The people who didn't have a laptop uh, uh, because they were uh, working in the office and then they went to work from home and they needed a laptop, they're not going to give up the, the laptop uh, when they get back to the office. They've realized that the laptop has opened a new window of opportunities for them to work from home and then do many, many other things that they were not doing. So, and how do you handle this? I think to Elena's point and uh, getting uh, this element uh, down to Hyundai, I think it all comes to who is the smartest and fastest in creating uh, your uh, own ecosystem. Uh, the way I see it is that our company was a great example on how you create uh, your ecosystem. And your ecosystem was you, because we're a vertically integrated company, creating the steel, uh, having your own suppliers like Mobis, uh, your own logistics like Globis, and then uh, on and on, all these uh, all the companies that I mentioned, Emotional, Exient, uh, Boston Dynamics, etc. <clears throat> but it gets a point that if you really want to be competitive, you need to step up uh, and accelerate the vertical integration. And you don't have the time 
to do this by yourself. I mean, you need to continue to expand through partnerships and developing your own uh, ecosystems. <clears throat> this is one of the strengths that, that I see uh, of our uh, company <clears throat> and our chairman, uh, Chairman Chan, who is the third generation uh, here of the founder. And then uh, he is really setting the stage for our company to pioneer and be uh, agile, nimble, <clears throat> and have the available technology to uh, help people manage their own mobility needs, which in my mind are related to your time needs. Because, you know, the, the way I see the evolution of mobility is quite similar to the evolution of uh, the TV programs. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, you had a, a TV only a few hours in the day, and then I had two channels, then 24 hours. <clears throat> Today, you have a menu of options. Uh, now, a lot of people are thinking, you know, the new mobility is going to kill the vehicles. I don't think so. I think uh, what we're doing is creating a, a lot of mobility options, depending on my circumstance, that I'm going to uh, utilize in each moment. It's not the same when I'm moving uh, around my, my home to go to a restaurant with my family uh, than when I am in another city and I'm going to a meeting. Right? In one case, I may have my car. In the other case, I may not need a car and I utilize a mobility. <clears throat> and it's not the same when I'm uh, in uh, Pekin uh, or uh, Beijing <clears throat> than when I'm in uh, New York or LA. The, the needs are maybe similar. However, how to uh, get them fulfilled are very, very different. So again, I think uh, uh, sum summarizing, uh, the, <clears throat> in our case, I see our company has the right vision and is developed all the uh, connected technologies through a smart development of our own technology plus a smart development of partnerships to be able to uh, connect all the, all the dots uh, in the end to manage the mobility of people or objects or uh, goods. And also at the end of the day, the timing. Uh, the time is the only thing that is very, very difficult to manage. And we utilize mobility when in reality we're trying to manage the time. Go back to time a little bit around the supply chain. Certainly the chip shortage is one F, one thing that we're seeing today. Uh, how do you see you know, companies in, 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 in your space looking at the global supply chain in a post-pandemic world? Are, are we going to see things as stretched out as they were? Is it going to uh, change into a different effort? Or how do you see that going forward? Because it's certainly not a small issue. Well, uh, I've been very vocal uh, to highlight that our company uh, took a different approach than uh, most of our competitors when uh, the pandemic hit. And then most of our competitors, they took a local view of the problem and they took global actions <clears throat> based on their local reality. And I think um, in our case, we look at the global uh, reality <clears throat> to take our local actions. And then as such, uh, we saw that South Korea and China, uh, they were recovering much faster than, um, uh, for example, uh, the U.S. But uh, the U.S. was thinking. So Jenny Powell was uh, telling us that the market was going to drop by 80% and it was not going to recover until uh, many months later. But we saw that in Asia, the markets were recovering earlier. So we decided not to stop ordering critical components. And even if we have been uh, hit by the global uh, supply constraint, <clears throat> uh, the fact that we maintain the orders 
help us have a better supply than others. So what is going to happen moving forward? I think um, moving forward, we're going to see uh, that we're going to have some supply shortages for quite a while because the investment in chips requires uh, several years uh, to get uh, the, the uh, foundries working, a huge uh, billion-dollar investment uh, to get it. And what we're going to see is much less <coughs> reliant on uh, the multinational uh, business, much more uh, uh, defense <coughs> or development of the local uh, businesses. If, uh, if you are connected in, um, in any uh, podcast or any activity related with the U.S. government, the U.S. government wants to ensure <coughs> the EV uh, is happening uh, in the U.S. and it's, it wants to ensure that the critical components like chips are uh, developed <coughs> and manufactured in the U.S. And when you go to South Korea, what do you think they're thinking about? They're thinking exactly the same. You go to uh, Europe, <clears throat> they're thinking the exact same thing, and so uh, the Chinese. So I think the whole pandemic <clears throat> and the uh, supply constraint are going to lead into a, a massive investment in some uh, technologies, <clears throat> which uh, are going to be expanded throughout the entire value, value chain. So I'm very positive uh, from that point of view because investment uh, looks a lot of economic development <coughs> of many nations and then enabling people uh, to do what they want, which is to have freedom of mobility, managing their time in an affordable uh, way <coughs> because the supply is going to be uh, equal to the demand, hopefully in maybe a year and a half, two years or something like this. Jose or Eric, I should say, uh, Jose's comments on the the freedom of mobility. Uh, I, I, you know, your work that you've done on autonomous vehicles uh, speaks to some of that uh, freedom. What are you seeing there in, in light of some of the infrastructure challenges that uh, Jose and Elena mentioned in terms of how cities are built today, and can we get to a widespread use of AVs in the next decade? Well, there's a lot of lot of work to do. I'm glad you said next decade, because I do think it's going to take a while to get there. You're starting to see some cities uh, start looking at development uh, very differently and looking at uh, curbside uh, you know, requirements and changing zoning requirements for the need for uh, parking spaces. And I think when we do move to uh, a society where we do have autonomous vehicles on the road, uh, and in particular, autonomous fleet vehicles, we're probably not going to need as many parking decks and parking spaces that we have right now, which is going to be transformational uh, to our cities because we're going to have more opportunity for green space or future economic development. But I think the AB uh, uh, industry is continuing to uh, progress. Uh, it slowed down a bit during uh, covid but uh, the investment that has been made in the industry uh, has really uh, proven uh, to see uh, advancements. There's been a lot of testing. The testing that's been done has provided data to fine tune uh, the technology. Uh, you know, companies like Waymo and what they've done in Arizona and the amount of data that they've collected uh, has been uh, tremendous. Tesla is another you know, key player, obviously. Uh, in, in, in the space. And I think uh, all of the uh, testing data coupled with the decline in prices of the battery technology, uh, the computing technology, the LIDAR technology, 
uh, has made it all much more affordable. Um, you're starting to see governments start paying more attention on the regulatory front, at least at the national level. In the United States, most of the uh, regulation that has occurred in the AV space has been at the state level. And it's been uh, primarily around testing and what's permissible and what's not. Uh, you know, in the United States, typically the federal government uh, regulates the vehicle and the state governments regulate the, the drivers. Well, in the case of autonomous vehicles, the car is the driver. So we're talking about uh, a whole new uh, way of looking at things. And right now we have this patchwork of laws and regulations around the United States, and we, we can't have autonomous vehicles crossing state lines without there being some kind of uh, continuity or overarching uh, laws and regulations. So the federal government, it seems to be picking up in terms of, uh, you know, trying to come up with broad-based uh, AV uh, legislation. It slowed down last year because of COVID. There was an effort earlier this year, and I think it will continue to be. You know, Secretary Buttigieg, being a, a young transportation secretary, understands uh, technology a lot better than some of his predecessors. Uh, AV technology also is something that uh, is embraced. It is a generational change. You know, younger generations are going to be earlier adopters to the technology. It's sort of the fear of the unknown. I've been very bullish on uh, and a big proponent of all the testing that's being done because I think it allows the public a chance to see and try the technology, especially with these autonomous shuttles, and to see that it's not uh, unsafe. But the older generations tend to be a little bit more cautious. And we're going to go through a period of time where you're going to have uh, cars being driven by people and then cars being driven by machines. And, you know, right now, 85 plus percent of accidents are caused by human error. Uh, you know, when we have autonomous vehicles on the road with drivers and there are accidents, I'm sure the drivers are going to blame the, the computers. And, and so we're going to have to go through a period of time sorting out all of those um, issues. But I do believe that things are, are still moving ahead. Uh, I think we're going to see a movement towards autonomous fleet vehicles. Uh, and uh, less you're starting to see, especially with younger generations that are moving into urban areas, uh, that personal car ownership uh, is declining. Uh, with these younger generations and, you know, they're going to utilize uh, fleet vehicles. So there'll still be a need for uh, Hyundais. And, and, and so uh, don't don't take misinterpret my comment. It's just the way that uh, I think people are going to utilize uh, their vehicles and whether it's personal car ownerships or using sort of a ride sharing approach with autonomous fleet vehicles is still yet to be determined. I think the First, autonomous vehicles you're going to see out on the road, and you're starting to see some of that now, is going to be uh, not necessarily passenger uh, vehicles other than the testing of the shuttles. I think you're going to see trucks. You're starting to see other modes of, uh, you know, Euros delivering pizzas for Domino's. Uh, you see Amazon testing out technology. Uh, and there seems to be uh, a lot more uh, focus on uh, freight and, uh, and trucks uh, that I think you're going to see out on the on the roads before you're going to see 
uh, passenger vehicles. Thanks, Eric. And let's let's move on uh, to you know an, an interesting topic around allocating to venture in the mobility space. You know, first maybe Chris, you could take a walk us through some of your thoughts here. Why are you seeing family offices allocate to this? And are there areas that you look at or ways that you look at the space uh, in particular or would, or how family offices are looking at this particular when it comes to allocating to investments to it? We're betting our career that mobility holistically, you know, air, land, sea, and space will be one of, if not the most important and valuable sector and subsectors of my lifetime. And so from a general portfolio theory perspective, when you think about allocations, you want to make sure that you're taking advantage of these major trends, which are certainly aren't completely de-risked, but have huge positive kind of tailwinds going into where they're deploying and, and where they're, how they're growing, let's put it that way. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting is when it comes to myself and my team, we have the benefit of being an investor operator group that has been in the mobility space since this, this iteration of mobility has really kicked off. And I still think we're in the very early innings. And so when it comes to, you know, why they're deploying there, it's because there's a huge TAM, but where should they be deploying? I think is maybe a more important question. And what we're finding is that family offices are really resonating because they, they want subject matter experts. They want people that can go very deep into all these differentiated aspects of what is mobility. And I think Jose and Elena kind of spoke to everything from, you know, the future of a powertrain to the future of software systems to looking at the smart city, it really is broad and it needs to be to take advantage of, of the opportunity, understanding that you need both investors and operators. You can't just have a quant shop and necessarily you can't just have individuals who don't understand how, how to structure and optimize for these deals on a forward going basis. They want a global network. They want something that can bring you know real partnerships to bear. And I think over the course of this discussion so far, the, the word that I've heard the most is partnerships. And the only way we're going to be able to maximize value is if you have these truly prolific global networks, but deep, intimate local access to the men and women that own the P&Ls at the billion dollar incumbents around where they're going and why are they going there and working with them as a true partner to, to set that strategy and engage on it. And then last but not least, you know, they want optionality and arbitrage. And the only way that you can do that well is if you understand what's happening in all these ecosystems and from a, a, a pricing partnership and customer perspective, you really understand how you can best structure and optimize for the, the VC corporate and startup relationship. And so it's been it's been really dynamic discussions, but I'm I'm happy to say um, huge amount of demand pull. I think because of those macro trends. The last question here that I'd, I'd love for all of you to answer is really around lessons learned, you know, things that you wish you had known. Uh, back when you got started that are just second nature to you today. And Eric, let's, uh, let's start with you uh, and your thoughts. Technology is moving uh, so fast. And in the public policy space, uh, we tend to have lawmakers that uh, you know, aren't able to keep up with the speed of industry. And you know, they're enacting or need to enact policy uh, that can actually uh, help advance technology. And so one of the challenges, uh, it's sort of a lesson that when I say, when you say lessons learned, uh, I think it's just more of an observation and the way that I have to approach, uh, you know, working with 
government officials and policymakers uh, in the innovation space is to understand that there's a lot of educating that needs to be done and that you need to get the private sector engaged with the public sector and not expect the public sector to just naturally uh, understand what it is that they need to do as it relates to industry. And uh, that, that's a critical thing. And I, I share that with my colleagues all the time because, uh, you know, if, if, if we're going to want to continue to uh, see innovation uh, across all sectors, uh, we're going to need to make sure that uh, our government officials uh, are equipped to make the right decisions. Thanks, Eric. Elena, how about yourself? So I think for me, the biggest learning is when I look back, like when I started and uh, today, is that most of the time we, we, we focus on the product itself, we focus on the technology itself, but sometimes we really forget the actual consumer a little bit. And um, I mean, when we talk about innovation, and innovation is only an innovation if there is an actual consumer that desires it, right? So it, it's really about the consumer's need. and basically iterating around those needs to create desirable products. And I think this is also very important um, in the mobility space that we really look into the consumer needs and based on that, develop different applications. And I think here I have learned a lot of from startups because this is usually what they intrinsically do. So they, they start with an idea, they, they test it, they iterate and yeah, they are only successful if the consumer, the actual consumer really desires it. And I think this is really a way of innovating that also in big corporates, um, yeah, we, we want to consider this way of innovation more and more. And Jose? Um, I think uh, one of the things uh, I've learned is that uh, why is the technology is very, very important uh, to run the business, uh, the, um, the very um, uh, active role of humans is critical <coughs> uh, because uh, most of the systems that we have uh, are systems that are run to, uh, to operate in a steady condition or under certain uh, inputs which are uh, normally already known. When the circumstances change, the behavior of uh, people change, the business change is when uh, the humans uh, make a difference. So I've learned to be a uh, fast, uh, nimble, uh, to have many options, to, to be uh, flexible. And then, uh, honestly, <clears throat> this has been, uh, uh, to me, one of the key success factors of uh, Hyundai uh, during this uh, global uh, crisis by taking right decisions, having flexible opportunities, uh, uh, capitalizing on uh, the already existing companies within the group. And then, uh, well, even if it was not perfect, it was better than for others. So when you own a supplier bodies, uh, is able to provide you chips, well, you're better than others that have none. Uh, when your own logistics company is able to provide you logistics services when the others don't, don't have it, you're better than others. So flexibility and then uh, integration and very powerful uh, options uh, within your uh, ecosystem is the winning uh, solution. And honestly, uh, I think uh, our, our company under the leadership of our chairman, Chang, 
is really into into this. Uh, you you can see it is very is very visible with all the different announcements uh, and partnerships, as I mentioned with Motional, with Exient, with Boston Dyna- Dynamics, uh, you name it. And then, uh, uh, if anything, I think uh, uh, I will try to uh, strengthen that activity and then uh, maximize the the sensing uh, of everything in the world, not only in the market what you're in. You need to receive input from everywhere to take the right decision locally. And Chris, uh, give us uh, give us your lesson learned. Sure, I think these are fantastic answers uh, and a great way to end this discussion. I think for me, um, <laughs> maybe the most important lessons learned is being very honest about what you're good at and, and it maybe more importantly, being very honest about what you're not. And I think as a younger man, uh, there's sometimes a belief that you can be all things to all people uh, and, and you try to be. And it's not to say you shouldn't work hard to be good at everything you, you go after, but there's a handful of things I'm really good at and there's a heck of a lot more that I'm not. And so what I want to do is focus on those things where I can derive and bring and create outstanding value and partner with people that bring those things in a more forceful and a better, in a higher multiple way than I can. And I think going back to that comment around partnership that we've heard so much on this discussion today, we believe strongly that the biggest opportunity in mobility is, is the disconnect that exists between VCs, corporates, and startups. And the only way you can mitigate those divides is through partnership, by really being honest about what you're good at, finding people that are great at what they are, and then working together in a very, very candor-rich environment. And I think maybe that's the other takeaway, Eddie, for me is, you know, always leading with candor, not trying to placate or pacify, but being, you know, not brutally honest, but but honest in, a, in as helpful a way as possible. And in my engagements in the ecosystem globally right now, those two approaches not only serve me really well, they serve my, my team and my partnership really well. They serve my partners and our entrepreneurs that we're investing in really well. Um, but those are probably the, the top two for me. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Elena, Jose, and Eric uh, for joining us today. It was a great conversation. And thanks for all of you for listening in. If you'd like to get in touch with any of our guests or you have questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, are so inclined, subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.